to Let It Lopate at Large. I'm Let It Lopate. Democrats have managed to retain control of the Senate, and although Republicans won their biggest House gains in New York State, they will have one of the smallest majorities in decades. Strident Donald Trump supporters and election deniers lost overwhelmingly, and many of his allies are now fleeing in the wake of the former president's announcement that he'll run again in 2024. Were reports of the death of democracy premature? And and how will the outcomes in Congress and state governments affect workers or activists or average Americans in general? Robert Henley joins us now to discuss these matters. Bob reports for a number of news organizations and is one of my colleagues here on WBAI, where he hosts a Monday morning talk show. His book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, was published by Democracy at Work. And I'm very pleased that Bob Henley has joined us again today. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. And haven't you also just joined the Revive Village Voice? Well, yeah, it's uh, a kind of interesting uh, Saturn return, so to speak. Uh, R.C. Baker is a great editor. Uh, it's a, I mean, you don't have the same huge staff, certainly, mm-hmm. but it was an honor and privilege to get a, to write a story that, like the voice of old, I mean, I was on staff there, I guess, maybe close to 10 years, um, <laughs> back under the leadership of uh, John Larson, from, for the most part. This story is about uh, a uh, a bid, uh, a huge election that's going on inside the UAW, the first time in the 87-year history of the union that there's a direct vote by rank and file. Um, it's almost a million members, uh, most of them retired. So you, will you be writing mostly about unions for The Voice? I, I don't think, I mean, my portfolio is, is pretty broad, right? Mm-hmm. So I would say that that's been my focus, but there's all kinds of things going on right now. And uh, it was a place where, you know, the voice always had a, a kind of contrarian investigative edge. And those places are far in between right now where you can get work published. Okay, well, let's get to the election. Before Election Day, you tweeted that these would be the most consequential elections in U.S. history. Well, what do you think now in the aftermath? Well, I still think that it was so. I am happy to have associated myself with the marks of Michael Moore, who was about the only pundit that got it right before the election. I was on your airwaves, and I said that uh, I did. I thought that this red wave thing was uh, an echo chamber effect that was just discounting the actual circumstance of the American people. But this has been going on for a while now. I found myself on the other side of the uh, considered uh, corporate media opinion in 2016. I anticipated uh, Donald Trump's rise to power and saw the blind spots in the American economy that permitted it. And they're continuing right along uh, to miss the direction of the American people and where they're where they're at. Uh, And some of it some of it has to do with um, the fact that we've seen the demise of local journalism. So they really don't have situational awareness. Much of what you see on television now is based on not reporting. There may be reporting inside the beltway. Uh, but there is not any of the granular reporting that I try to base my work on. There's some of it, but it's nothing like it was. And so they really are flying by and they have no situational awareness. And so they talk to each other. And I, I have to say, you know, when you work in a place like CBS, which I had a brief stint doing, and you, you walk into master control and you hear these ads, these TV ads. And we saw it in this last campaign 
billions of dollars spent convincing Americans about a vast crime wave that was overtaking, bringing great disorder. All of that stuff was just an echo chamber that was bought by the tax cutting um, corporate right wing. And it when the, at the end of the day, I hate to use that phrase, but it, it, it came to nothing. And in fact, I believe a case can be made that in 2024, if Democrats get down to brass tacks and, and get rid of the corporatists within the party, we could have a, a blue wave that votes the GOP into extinction. Now, the New York Times reported today that some Democrats are blaming New York City's Mayor Eric Adams for the Republican successes locally. Now, I think that to the degree that, I mean, one of the problems that there was a, a, a big fallacy, which was that, and this comes from just people not being on the planet long enough, Leonard, something you and I are not handicapped by. Um, I do remember when I started out reporting uh, that we had 2,250 homicides in the early 1990s. Uh, it's now down uh, a fraction of that. I mean, seriously, a fraction of that. And so to the degree to which Mayor Adams, when he inherited uh, Bill de Blasio's New York City, the degree to which he bought into that, I could say that they have a point. But we have to look at the systemic and endemic corruption of the Democratic Party. We have to look at the impact of having an alpha male like Andrew Cuomo in there and just years and years and years of a uh, of, of the party really operating as a business for a handful of individuals. And then finally, when the progressives under AOC's leadership, um, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, started this counter pushback, which is really transforming New York state politics, uh, we began to see some kind of revival of, of dynamic activist politics. But the truth is that New York state's performance was abysmal. Hmm. Uh, voter turnout was a, a dropped from 2018. It was like 43%. And the states where we did what we needed to do, which is in places, swing states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, you had near record midterm turnout. You had successes at the legislative state level and across the state. And the, the reality is that New York and New Jersey, and by the way, California, by the way, Florida, by the way, Texas, not Beto Specs effort notwithstanding, the reality is that they did not engage a sleeping giant that Reverend Barber has said consistently that the the Democrats need to connect with, which are the tens of millions of low wealth, low wage workers that are really the where this country's at. I mean, they're and now, wait, along you, those lines. After the election, you tweeted that the Democrats must engage low wage folks if they're to restore an FDR coalition and defeat the MAGA extremists. So, that's right, I, right. So how have the Democrats failed to engage? Well, let's I mean, we have an hour program, I guess, 55 <laughs> minutes. Uh, we, take we have a lot of other play. things we want to talk about, too. Exactly. Right. And so, I mean, let's start. Let's and I don't want to be like a negative Nancy here, but we still have after Joe Biden's brilliant presidency, where more than halfway through, we still have a seven dollars and 25 cents hmm. minimum wage federally. Hmm. There's one thing. And with two million, and that's women's- despite the fact that the Democrats had majorities in both the House and the Senate. Although exactly, yeah. and then we have you know, and then also it's a failure to follow through. Democrats have to act like the individual lives of voters matter. That means that you don't have five. Imagine this: we have at least five million families, single parents for the most part, struggling, and 
the American Rescue Plan is passed with $14 billion in aid that they're entitled to, and it's sitting in the Treasury right now. Now, you tell me why the Democratic Party has not made it a priority to go door to door and connect people with that money. And once you have that kind of empowering conversation, my friend, you begin to make people feel like they've got agency and you make the connection between social policy and what's happening in Washington and their lives. Is, is and that, that's the work that needs to be done. Is that because uh, there's been, uh, some people say, a divide among Democrats between those allied with Biden, Schumer and Pelosi and those who were more progressive like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Well, what it is, it's it's let's be straightforward about it. Uh, one of the things is that uh, there's so many Democrats busy trading stock. I mean, that's kind of what took Congress Malinowski out from the seventh district. Very bright guy, former Obama State Department guy, gets in in 2018. It's a Democrat, you know, does a good job getting elected, and then just loses his head. Doesn't file the forms. Does too much of the stock trading and, and loses so his seat. And loses his seat. And here's the thing about that. Like, in in a Democratic Party and in New Jersey, if it was the problem is we have the Democrats, activists, and then we have the professional Democrats. They're about business. That's all they're about. And they would be Republicans, except they can make more money as Democrats. And so they do not want the vast majority of working people woken up because they're cutting deals in Trenton right now that are about their personal enrichment. So we have to sort that stuff out. So that's that's where I find the dividing line. Well, Democrats lost in the House and barely held the Senate. But progressives like Summer Lee, Maxwell Frost, Greg Kaser and John Fetterman did better. What should President Biden and uh, the Democratic congressional leadership learn from that? Well, I guess one of the things is they have to understand that they are in an economy that's unlike any in their lifetime. I mean, right now we see that we're going through uh, a slowdown and it's being discussed in terms of a recession. And so we always talk about things the same way. That's how the media made the mistake. They they can't get out of the metronome of history. Why? It's always been this way. And so we're usually when you have a recession, all the smart people get together and say, how can we preserve the value of our currency? Yes, money loses is losing its value. Well, I got a newsflash for them. They need to get out more. And this is going to be a downturn that's not about the value of money. It's about labor and the impediments of late stage vulture capitalism that gets in the way of humble people wanting to work, Leonard, because they have barriers to employment. That's right. You're not going to hear it anywhere else. But we have to have the vulture capitalists get out of the way of the average American family so they can hold the job and nurture and sustain their elders and their children. Well, that was what I call a better deal. There was a time when uh, people saw the Republicans as the party of the wealthy and the Democrats as the party of, of poor people and working class people. Uh, was there an identifiable time when the Democrats turned away from Americans in the lower income brackets? Because uh, Republicans seem to have engaged many of uh, the working people. So let's see. Um, there's the Reagan era. So I guess we can tra trace it back to that. Um, we did, of course, sort see during the Vietnam War, there was kind of a fracture going on there because uh, union households also have a lot of people that are very patriotic. 
And so having been involved in the social justice movement around that time, I remember that it divided households. You would have even in use union household, the younger person closer to my age would side with being against the war and their dad and mom might be, you know, for the war, but still Democrats. Reagan really put a fine point on that. And so what he did was he laid off the air traffic controllers. He made a stand against labor. He somehow managed to cast it. Listen, labor didn't help itself because let's face it, there's been a lot of corruption in labor. So they were easy to caricaturize and then it turned into like a villain. And so you saw the attitude of unions change. The idea of collective action kind of took a hit. And so in this period of time, you had kind of Reagan create this thing, the safe space called, you know, Reagan Democrats. And so to some degree, what began to happen is that both political parties uh, became, as I said, the concierge to multinational capital inside the Beltway. The key priority was the creation and amassing of the largest formations of capital as possible, because there was an assumption that if we grew the wealth of these individuals, we would be growing democracy. We're on the other side of that now. We have the greatest wealth inequality in the history of the country at a time when people are disconnected from the land. I mean, back when the Depression happened, so you knew somebody who had a farm. Well, now in this period of time, Americans are, you know, a huge chunk of Americans are struggling uh, month to month to get by. And so... The reality is people are, have been working longer and and basically falling behind. I mean, since the 70s, basically, we've seen a working class disposable income decline. Wages have not kept up. If you factored in uh, productivity, you have a much different uh, situation with middle class families doing better. But what happened is all of the benefits of technology and productivity went to the folks who don't pay taxes at the very top of the income strata. And that's where we are now. Well, and so, go ahead. Where are the uh, labor unions in all of this? Uh, I know the uh, UAW held elections for, is holding elections for its leadership, but didn't some Starbucks workers in New Jersey go on strike yesterday? Well, actually, yeah, it was quite a, a bit of activity. So what's, what happened was during, um, if you go back to the, you know, 1950s, you have like a huge, robust labor movement, particularly coming out of the Second World War, where FDR uh, supported the notion of unions. Uh, and so you had a uh, now you see unions of uh, and like 10 percent of the workforce, a little bit over 10 percent down like a uh, to a fragment of what it was at one time. And so there is except in the public service, it's a little bit better, about 30 some odd percent. New York State, you know, we have one of the highest rates. You're like in the 20 percent bracket, but still a minority. And when uh, Reagan laid off the, the air traffic controllers, he sent a real chill through the labor movement. Now, what's happened in the years since is that this imbalance between capital and labor has become so obscene that young people like Chris Smalls have started independent unions uh, and they are getting some traction. Uh, out at Staten Island, we saw that they won that vote for that warehouse, but it's very tough. And so we also at the same time, squeaky queen, uh, clean unions like the UAW, which was the started by Walter Ruther and was considered like the the benchmark for uh, a clean, well-run organization, actually fall into corruption. Just recently, 
Um, 18 some odd union officials were convicted in a in a situation where Fiat uh, Chrysler bought them off. And so now they're having a direct election for the first time in the history of the union. But so there's a struggle going on. And in some ways, the labor movement can't keep up with the militants of the American people. You have 47 million Americans left their job last year. That's four times the size of the the AFL-CIO. And as Sarah Nelson points out in my voice piece, the flight attendants president, the CWA uh, AFA flight attendants union, the reality is that conventional labor was slow here. And that's the problem with all organizations. I mean, you get comfortable, you're making your six figures, you got somebody driving you around, you're not feeling the struggle. And so now there's a battle going on inside these legacy unions, which are vulnerable to corruption, just like anything else. And now they've got pressure and competition from independent unions. Bob Henley is my guest today on Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. On Wednesday, you reported about a movement for more transparency on health care pricing in New Jersey. <laughs> Tell us about that. Are New Jersey hospitals overcharging? Oh, wow. Uh, and Are they being the run as for-profit businesses? Well, see, I, I, boy, you, you, like this to you, do a whole program about this. So what's going on in New Jersey is a bellwether for the rest of the country. Uh, uh, public employees in New Jersey are looking at it between the 20 to 24 percent increase in their premiums for health care. That's right. Police, firefighters, nurses, those would be the same people uh, who we forgot to give hazard pay to, who we used to bang pots and pans for to celebrate their sacrifice. And in reality now, they're staring down the barrel of a wage cut. And that's because here in New Jersey, um, the healthcare industry is is kind of like owns Trenton. Let's be honest. I mean, you can call yourself a nonprofit hospital dedicated mm-hmm. to the healing and still pay your CEO three or four million dollars. I mean, mm-hmm. let's let's just look at universities, shall we? They're nonprofit institutions, and there's a great deal of wealth concentrated there. And so, what the unions are doing is saying, "Wait a minute! Before we just reflexively pay this premium increase, let's have some hearings. Let's see what hospitals are charging for dip for the same procedure." Because we are seeing this massive run up. I mean, have you ever tried to decipher a hospital bill? I mean, mm-hmm. it's a black box, like I say. And so you have no idea what deal they're cutting to the side. You know, is a Blue Cross Blue Shield. Is it shielded under this? Are they getting this? Are they getting that? So all of it is is something where they're hiding the ball. And it's something like, I mean, when you go to buy a car, you got more transparency. You know what's going to happen if you don't get the sunroof. But you can have no idea what's going to happen if you have to have an appendectomy. Mm-hmm. In New Jersey, Tom Keene Jr. defeated Tom Malinowski for the 7th Congressional District. Uh, their TV ads made both of them sound problematical. <laughs> uh, it, it was a, a matter of uh, holding your nose and voting for the one that you would be more inclined to vote for because you already are a Democrat or you already are a Republican? Well, I think you have to look at the fact that, again, we suffer from this depressed turnout that happened. And... We had a signal, uh, Governor Murphy, when he ran against Jack Chitterelli, uh, former Assemblyman Jack Chitterelli, Republican, ran a very energetic race uh, and almost bested Murphy. Uh, and when you look at it, the the vote was the lowest gubernatorial vote that we've had in, in many, many decades. 
And the Democrats didn't see that as a problem. See, as long as they win barely, it's really because what they want to do is control the contracts. Well, you that's what it's about. And they, they, they didn't do the work. To get, with the exception of some unions, there was no real sufficient door-to-door operation. And also, Malinowski had this problem that he had this issue with the, mm-hmm. the stock mm-hmm. uh, thing where he didn't follow the, the paperwork requirements. Yeah, but Tom, he was going after Tom Kane on, on abortion. So don't those things uh, e- cancel each other out? Not really. Not really. Because a couple of things were happening at the same time. One was... I think the in the New York, uh, New Jersey echo chamber, which is this calliope machine that we have with the post with their disingenuous headlines about murder and mayhem. And then you have WABC with the exile radio with uh, crazy man Giuliani, mayor of crazy town. Like the people begin to feel that they're in this area that they really need to be very frightened. And you saw Democrats incumbent Democrats who ended up winning all of a sudden getting concerned about car theft at the last minute. Like they did not have an objective understanding of the circumstances of the people that they represent. So they were left with the echo chamber brought to them by the billionaire right wing echo machine. And so when you don't have an authentic knowledge of your community, you deserve to lose. In an Inside New Jersey essay, you wrote that when it comes to engaging more voters and building their base, New Jersey Democrats seem to be on autopilot, set on a downward trajectory. Yeah. But yeah, don't I mean, New Jersey Republicans tend to be more moderate than uh, Republicans in other states? I, I think that distinction has largely been lost uh, since in around the period of time of the insurrection to really get a flavor of just how wacky it is. If you're in this side of the Hudson, tune into 101.5, which is the lone station that serves all of New Jersey. And it is the right wing craziness. And they got, you know, anti-teacher union. That's all it is all around. You'd think that. And the problem is that they they only hold the airwaves by being more extreme. And so that's kind of what's happened in, you know, uh, New Jersey politics. And so. I, I don't think that when you've had the privilege and honor, as Malinowski did, of serving in Congress, I don't think it's just enough to say that your opponent is too friendly with Donald Trump. You have to be able to assertively stand up and 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 offer something that you did of consequence. And and quite frankly, in light of the economic pressures that working class families are feeling in New Jersey. That what the Democrats have actually accomplished so far is very weak stuff. I mean, it was nice that they were able to do the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, but not to be able to offer universal health care um, or, uh, let's say, universal child care. That's not got too radical. I know that people would you know clutch their pearls and faint if you talked about universal health care. But universal child care, I mean, you couldn't have a more difficult situation than New Jersey where I I know from doing this reporting that there were so many households where women have not been able to return to the workforce because of the pandemic, because of the collapse of of public education, an unprecedented event in modern America. And they can't afford to go back to work. So what you need to do is keep your promises and develop what every other Western democracy has, which is a, a form of affordable 
child care and elder care as if the working people mattered. And see, this will solve your economic problem because the problem we're having right now is not the value of the dollar. It's getting people in key positions to work. I can't tell you how many times I observe that people are losing business because they don't have sufficient staff to be able to handle the customers. This is a real thing. And we focus on the value of currency and it's the undervaluing of work and the fact that we lost over, you know, I'm sure you must hear these clueless things on financial radio. They go on like, where are the workers? Hmm. Oh, where's everybody? Hmm. Oh, oh, a million people died. Three or four million are disabled by COVID. Like we, we're in denial about the fact that we are still dealing with the after effects of this. I mean, that's part of the problem. That's one of the things I would say about Adams, going back to Mayor Adams, to your point. One of the things that he's failed to do is communicate the body blow done urban centers like New York City because of the pandemic. And so what he does is he fights us. He lets the uh, conservatives define the space. And he's like he wants to be known as the guy that can manage without raising taxes. Unfortunately, we're in a situation right now, situation right now where this country is so, still under tremendous amount of stress. You see it in the collapse of psychological services, and you see it if you talk to teachers how hard it is to get kids focused and, and get their heads back in their studies. This is not over, and we need to at least have self awareness that it's not. These were the most expensive midterms in history. Almost seventeen billion dollars were spent with inflation in the political costs like that. Should we expect more? billionaires like Peter Thiel or Ronald Lauder or Rick Caruso to try to buy more political offices? In the case of Rick Caruso, he spent over $100 million on, of his own money in his run for L.A. mayor uh, and failed, by the way. Well, that's good, right? Yeah. He, he lost and- to Karen ba- Bass, who became the first woman elected as mayor of Los Angeles. But um, what about that? Billionaires spending hundreds of millions uh, on on elections. Uh, in, in the old days, it was on boats and 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 paintings. Right. Well, it's guess that um, I think that Sheldon Whitehouse has another book. Senator uh, Whitehouse has another book out about this. He's really kind of the clearest voice. This has been going on for a long time. It has accelerated, and it's no accident that as money has bought more and more access and co-opted more and more of the government, the ability of great wealth to avoid accountability has increased. And so it is, and it's this kind of centrifugal force thing that's happening now. You see it in the fact that um, we have so deregulated that something as large a, a platform as Twitter can be owned, taken private by one individual. So, you know, it's it's kind of like we have to relearn all those lessons about antitrust, concentration of ownership. And so I do think we have to address this question about campaign finance. But it, I think more directly, we have to do is make the connection for people that politics can make a difference in their life. That's one of the problems. The Democratic Party has to take a leaf out of organizations like uh, the Communication Workers of America, Uh, citizen action in New Jersey, you have to support actually going into communities, going door to door and listening to people and then helping them, actually helping them file for the earned income tax credit that they're entitled to. Because when you have those kinds of meaningful conversations, you find out what are their impediments to success. Maybe they don't have access to Wi-Fi. Maybe they don't have online banking. And when you start having conversations that help them actualize, then they begin to see the connection between 
government policy and their stake in America in the form of a vote. There's no, that is the work that's to be done. And so that and I think you can counter the billionaire influence by this kind of grassroots engagement of our neighbors. Well, Ronald Lauder has announced that he won't support Trump in 2024. Uh, Rupert Murdoch has also backed away from him. So uh, should we just see them putting their support with behind somebody else? Hey, you have any idea who that might be? Well, you know what? I, I, I guess I've kind of crossed over the line at this point. I really don't care about those guys. Uh-huh. I got to be honest. About I really feel like too much. This is all part of the kabuki mm-hmm. caring about people you never meet about circumstances you can't affect. And to me, that is idle. And we don't have time. This planet is a mess. And I'm 67. And I want mm-hmm. my grandkids to have a compassionate country. It was lousy when I came into this planet. We were blowing presidents' heads off, killing, killing civil, rights, civil rights leaders. And the legacy I want to leave is a place that knows how to manage itself. So let's talk about the billionaires just in general. Well, we uh, uh, are coming to the midpoint of the show where I normally talk about uh, helping WBAI manage itself. Yahoo! Um, let, let me uh, tell people that this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Back with Robert Henley, who is uh, one of our, my colleagues here on WBAI, where he hosts a morning Monday morning show. His book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, was published by Democracy at Work. And you can read him in any number of uh, publications. Um, well, I, I did bring up the fact that WBAI right now uh, is not alone in um, in facing serious economic hardship. We are asking people to become BAI buddies uh, for $10, $15, $20, whatever they can afford a month to help us to at least have a sense of um, <laughs> some funding for the future. But right. um, but do you see this as a trend in America? Because uh, I understand that public broadcasting in general is going through um, uh, some serious economic problems. Well, I, I think that having uh, I do work in other places. I, I do work with WBGO. I show up on the Pacific Network and other places. So I do have a feel for the economic stress that these institutions are under. And I, I think that. Uh, by the same token, though, if you look at the the impact that WBA has had over the years, uh, I mean, even the fact to some degree, and you know, maybe we shouldn't be taking credit for this, but Mayor Adams, you know, his first place that he was regularly heard on the air when he was a champion for uh, change, when he was working from within the police department uh, to support accountability when it came to issues of, of uh of racism, he was on WBI. There's just so many people and so many causes that started here and then got traction. Um, you know, I think of Ken Gale's programming now, right? Like Ecologic. I mean, I, the list is endless of of things that were heard here that got traction 
and have had a major impact in the world. Um, so it is it is a struggle. And the problem is that independence comes at a price. And so uh, it is true that we don't have commercial support. Uh, yeah, and, we, don't, we don't run funding credits like some other public broadcasters do. That, right. And over the yeah. arc, we've been doing it. They sound more and more like a commercial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's also something it's an institution that is is based in the community. And it only is going to survive and thrive if that community supports it. And so, you know, it's a if you say to me, if people are concerned about the direction of the country and they feel like they want to see more days like we had just recently in the election where you wake up and say, oh, my gosh, like, oh, it looks like we elected more progressives to Congress. Uh, oh, it looks like, oh, what do you know? In South Dakota, they voted for Medicare expansion. Whoa. Oh, what do you know? In Kansas, a state that's Republican, they voted for uh, reproductive rights. So if, if that's the narrative that you want to see continue, you you need to support WBAI because this is where the fight is going on. It's not happening on MSNBC. It's not happening really on NPR. They might be individual compelling reports. They're great journalists in all those places. But in terms of a unifying principle of an entity that is directed by the community and for the community, this is the only ball game, friends. Well, interestingly, the Adams administration is trying to push civil service retirees into private for-profit Medicare Advantage plan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so this whole move that's happening, we are in the middle of tumultuous times. We've been through, it's almost like history is speeding up. It's like an uh, an escalator that's been taken up a couple of notches. Insurrection and pandemic, something that could take decades to play out, playing out in just a couple of years. And so we really are at a turning point, but without a method of communication. I mean, there's a reason why in, 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 in Caribbean nations, the first thing that they go after is the radio station. Hmm. When the governments want to throw over the exit, when there's a coup and they want to overthrow the existing order. This has been a beacon of freedom, for better or worse, for 60 years. But it's not a guarantee that you're not going to turn to it one day and have it be the sports channel yeah. or the Bitcoin channel or Wait, some other channel. Well, there was a there was a coup attempt uh, just a, a couple of years ago. Uh, so that's possible. But I, I want to move back, back on to the topics at hand. In fact, even before we get to, to politics, I was wondering whether the cryptocurrency collapse should be a concern for the general public. Because for someone like me, it was just totally a foreign thing. I I, <laughs> I, I, I I paid absolutely no attention to it because I knew I wasn't going to uh, engage. Okay, so uh, here's the thing. So the, the, the problem here is that this is something that billions of dollars are wrapped up in. With the case of FTX, you had this one guy uh, who was able to give all kinds of money, a lot of it to Democrats, to basically control the narrative about this currency, um, this guy, Sam Bankman-Fried, hmm. uh, and basically get people to look the other way with this whole Bitcoin cryptocurrency scam. And so you also have the person who's been picked to regulate it, Gary Gensler, uh, who is the security exchange uh, czar. And, you know, he was, he was going to get tough on it. We're going to get around to regulating it. And that's what he said. Now, once again, we got somebody who's watching the hen house 
who, let's refresh, bet you can guess, former partner of Goldman Sachs. I'm so surprised. And also the former mm. campaign finance chair for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And so once again, you see Wall Street gets inside the regulatory structure and then looks the other way. And then we have a problem that is going to have an impact on everyone. For instance, it's important for you to know that there were pension systems. One of the big losers that's been in the paper was uh, it's Ottawa or Ontario uh, Teachers Pension Fund had like 80 some odd million dollars wrapped up in this. Uh, and there's similar things that are happening with pension uh, funds that are invested in in private equity. And so we are how many years out from 2008 and 2009? And we're we're on the verge of learning the same thing again, which is the money people on Wall Street mm -hmm. who somehow always manage to own the best real estate here, keep their money in the Cayman Islands. Then when you know hits a fan, then we all say, well, we're all going to have to tighten the belt. And we know the script and the people that are responsible for the great train robbery never get caught. They give more campaign contributions. And then it's then it's time for the Federal Reserve to tighten interest rates to try to chase out some of the exuberance, which means they try to actually blow up jobs and actually make it hard for people to just live their lives. I mean, that's kind of what we've been doing. Right. And so I do see some danger here that we're now in a situation where you have so many and a lot of young people got caught up in this. And this is another example where the mayor, this was kind of some, I think, unfortunate that he so closely identified with Bitcoin and kept saying it was such a great thing. And you got to mm -hmm. wonder about his judgment, quite frankly. Well, the biggest Democratic House losses were in New York, where Republicans flipped four Democratic seats. Why were the Republicans so successful in a state with a governor, state legislature, and largest city with half of the state's population are pretty much Democratic? Well, I think one of the was one it of the re redistricting uh, a, a, ma a major source of that. I think that, like, you know, if you ever do like analysis of how does a car crash happen, there's usually three or four things that lead to a catastrophic event. So you have the Democrats overreaching in the beginning, didn't follow the independent redistricting concept, a more nonpartisan thing. They got greedy. They overreached. Then it ended up being set into the courts that Andrew Cuomo kind of stacked with conservatives. Uh, add to it that um, New York State's uh, party, Democratic Party, run by Mr. Jacobs, is a neoliberal, totally over the top. Uh, I don't know how to describe it, but it's about that the 1% for Democrats. Like it, it, you look at all the deals they cut and look at the tenure of, uh, of Andrew Cuomo. I mean, he, he was against unions before he was for unions. Uh, I, and so you you have to look at the inability of the Democratic Party to control its brand. I mean, the kind of structural rot that's in the Democratic Party. Go back to what happened with Spitzer. I mean, all of that has an impact. And so one of the things that happened is the party itself is out of the, the hierarchy, the leadership. When you have people that are super wealthy in leadership positions of something that is supposed to have the pulse of the people, you have a disconnect. I'll give you an example. One victim of that was Congressman Crowley. He was in you know, Queens and represented part of the Bronx. 
went on to great fame and success in Washington, was a creature more of Washington than his district. And a funny thing happened over the arc of his lengthy and distinguished career. The district changed profoundly. So you had the Bronx and Queens. You had the number of households that were struggling week to week as measured by United Way's Alice, asset limited, income constrained, but employed, and the number of people that are below the poverty line. That became the majority in the formerly middle-class district that Mr. Crowley hmm. represented. And so AOC won, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez won, because she was connected to the social circumstance of the district she wanted to represent. And that's happened throughout the United States. And so where Democrats aren't aware of that change, that most of the families they represent are struggling, they're going to lose or be indicted. Bob Henley is my guest today on London Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Well, along those lines, Sean Patrick Maloney uh, is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee chair, but he lost to a conservative Republican, Michael Lawler. Uh, although it was his job to help elect Democrats. Uh, was it because he made some people angry when he switched districts and forced out Mondaire Jones? I, I would say that there were a couple of things. One is when you're in a leadership position, you have to be taking a broader view and be thinking not just about yourself, about, uh, but about the well-being of the party. I think that in Mr. Maloney's case, it tipped over too much into the uh, narcissistic self-interest area. And so, yes, he made a bad call. Um, if he was about party building, he would have uh, affirmed, you know, taken the higher road. And because he was more established in politics, uh, would have not done what he did and imposed himself on that district that you mentioned, Martin Jones district. Then similarly, uh, there was this kind of cynical thing the Democratic Party did where it kind of got in behind and supported covertly right wing, rabid uh, insurrectionists in congressional districts because they'd rather run against. You know, that's unethical. It's also Russian roulette. It's foolish. This is something I think he thought was a good idea. It kind of shows the shallowness of the guy, to be quite frank. And so add to that that. He was moving into a district he wasn't fully aware of, and he permitted the right wing to define him his district. So they were able to do things like run these ads about this crime wave that was disconnected from reality, talking about New York City as this chaotic place of of random regular violence where everybody faces imminent peril of being pushed in mm -hmm. front of a subway train. And yet it's not borne out by the lived experience. And that doesn't mean that well, the experiences in other places, aren't are real. In other places, it's dangerous to be going to school. So Right. <laughs> now, but, exactly. Now, uh, do you see the possibility that Hakeem Jeffries will be the new uh, Democratic leader in the House as a, a good thing for this area? I, well, sure. I mean, the degree to which um, I mean, I think what's interesting is that uh, he is a, a little unconventional in the sense that uh, he backed Mile Wiley for uh, mayor coming out of the uh, Brooklyn political uh, machine. You would have thought that he would have backed Eric Adams. So he I think that he does make independent judgments based on what he thinks is actually best. The calculus seems to be uh, uh, somewhat elevated. 
Um, I think he also knows, I've seen him uh, in the well of the house, and he, he certainly knows how to hold the floor. Um, I think the fact that he's familiar with New York City's problems and the challenges, that, that has to be helpful. Uh, and, you know, I also think that uh, Nancy Pelosi deserves credit for uh, turning over the uh, the uh, the House to a new generation of leadership. And, of course, only in this environment of uh, septuagenarians would, you know, 50 some odd years be considered a whippersnapper. Uh, makes me feel hopeful. Yeah, but she uh, she has been uh, had the job for 20 years. So that is a, a, a long tenure. I'm not sure if anybody else has ever had that job that long. Right, right. And I would say, I mean, the one thing where she really had didn't have an ear for what was going on was the stock trading, where she mm-hmm. just didn't understand both the, uh, for whatever reason, I mean, the idea is, as a colleague mentioned to me, I was on a program earlier out of New Hampshire about this, the idea that you would have the San Francisco per- person of Congress living in a mansion. I mean, she really, that those folks that are in that situation, just right now, it's so disconnected. Uh, fr- and that's why when you have a uh, House and a Senate that can't deliver on a promise of raising the minimum wage for seven twenty-five to $15 an hour, I mean, that's just inexcusable. And that's why I say the Democrats really need to hit the ground running. I'd like to see them use this lame duck session to keep some of those promises that they made to, to working families. But will they then remain in force after the change? For example, the Conference on Climate Change in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, and today, will a majority GOP delegation in Congress be more willing to address climate change? Oh, absolutely not. I, that's why I said they have to do it before Cinderella turns into, uh, the carriage turns into a pumpkin. They've got to get the uh, minimum wage through, of course, I think electoral reform, is important there's uh that would take some of the ambiguity out of it that the right-wing insurrection has had so much mischief fun with uh, and then also they really need to do uh universal child care for the economy i mean right now in canada i'm i'm reporting out that they're working on a program that's going to uh, provide universal child care that's ten dollars a day i mean we really have to get serious if we if we want to head off a real economic contraction we have to support people getting back to work. And that's one fundamental down payment on that. The Supreme Court will hear arguments in Moore versus Harper on December 7th. And that case could turn on justices' views regarding independent state legislature theory. Does our political future really depend on unelected justices? Well, I would say that... Um, that's why it's so important to get the Electoral Act, which does offer some clarity and would uh, not permit the situation where you could have let state legislatures overturn the will of the people. Uh, I would say also uh, that Democrats have done something they haven't done in a long time, both in if you l- look at the uh, the results from the election, Michigan State House return to Democrats. That hasn't happened. You have the, the perfect trifecta. You haven't had this happen in uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, so we now have the ability to start pushing back at the state level. That's the place that uh, Democrats have really uh, failed. I mean, Chris Christie, when he was head of the Republican Governors Association, was really an evil genius at being able to move the state party operations across the country uh, into the victory column. And we still have some way to go, 
but it has to be a multi-layered uh, fight. Well, Trump loyalists like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, and Ronnie Jackson all won. Uh, so, so do we have any sense of where they're going to be going? Well, I mean, what happens is they're going to hopefully be— um, Or, on the other like, hand, where Merrick Garland is going to go in the, in the brief time that he has before the Republicans take over the, uh, the House of, of Representatives. Well, still, he's going to be functioning as attorney general. Uh, even after they take over, uh, if the Republicans uh, follow up on their preview of coming attractions, uh, which was a very disorganized press conference uh, after they finally got the House by a handful of votes, they're going to do the, you know, go full Benghazi. And they're going to rather than do things that are going to help the American people, they're going to do things that will fire up the base and will get them campaign funds. And that's why it's important for the Democrats in the Senate uh, and the House to be forming, as I say, a comprehensive pro-working family better deal and just come up with one proposal after another that would fundamentally uh, reinforce and help Americans get back to work and then have the House stand in the way and then have them doing their. But what about Hunter Biden? Like, that's what we need to do. And then we can do what we need to do, which is vote them into extinction. Now, I wasn't going to talk about the uh, runoff between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker on December 6th, but $115 million has already been spent there. Right. And, yeah, and, and every day we see Herschel Walker say some other absolutely idiotic <laughs> thing um, d- that he has said during a speech. Um, and yet— there's a possibility he's still going to win. Well, I think the fact that it's not for the uh, the, uh, the actual control of the Senate, that mm. that is going to take some so, of so, the air out of that. So that'll some people will back off on on giving money to his campaign. Right, right. But the other important thing here is that the uh, the Democrats have to do. Uh, what Reverend Barber is instructing, which is to engage, and in Georgia, it's a considerable number of low-wage, low-wealth voters, and encourage them to turn out and to follow through. Uh, that's why, actually, the the, um, the Cairo Center and the Poor People's Campaign did a uh, post-2020 study, and they found that that kind of direct voter engagement was what actually resulted in both Ossoff and Warnock being elected because they were able to get the rural vote, uh, which is critical. And that's the other thing, too, is that the Democratic Party has to take a look and take heart, but then follow up on the fact that it can get traction on issues like a living wage, like reproductive rights, and make sure that on every state's ballot, we have these issues. I mean, we've seen things like... um, that you would be surprised at uh, in terms of rent control. I mean, local things. There is no doubt that there, Leonard, is a new consensus empowered by an increasingly more diverse and younger voting population that want to claim their future through the vote. It's happening. Demographics is destiny. We just have to work hard enough to engage it. Meanwhile, where can people read your the things you write between the times you appear on our show. So uh, uh, at Stuck Nation, I'm still hanging in there on Twitter. I've met mm. a lot of wonderful people there, and I still think it's a very cost effective way 
to reach and to hear from other people and keep track of what's going on. Uh, there's uh, Work Bites. Um, I've started that with Joe Maniscalco and Steve Wisnia and Tom Sherd. Uh, we're longtime labor reporters, and we're actually doing an independent uh, labor press. Um, we are covering in detail, which we didn't get to go into much detail about the real turning point that's happening uh, in, in New York City and the nation as regards health care. I mean, what New York City is experiencing in terms of the health care crisis is really about a more broader collapse of our health care economy and the actual system itself that you know we saw with how many people died four percent of the world's population and 14 percent of the of the of the uh of the covid deaths. but bob we have no more time and maybe okay. that's something that we should address uh, in the next time that you visit excellent. our show excellent uh, meanwhile you. you can hear bob uh on wbai uh, he has a monday morning talk show and you can read his book stuck nation can the united states change course on our history of choosing profits over people which is published by democracy at work thank you again for being uh, one of my favorite guests on this show Goes too fast, Leonard. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of the show. Special thanks to our segment producer, Hugh Sampson, for all of his help in preparing today's interview. And to our executive producer, Keziah Glow, and Reggie Johnson for the invaluable work that they do throughout the week. If you'd like to check out more of our one-hour shows on any one subject, you can access our archive of over 700 shows at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else. Podcasts are available. And... Uh, as long as Elon Musk doesn't uh, cause any problems, we're still on Twitter. And if you would like to reach me directly, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. And uh, as Bob and I were talking about earlier, we need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting BAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. We are asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's give in the number 2, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950 and we hope you'll consider becoming a sustaining member what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $20 a month or more. And if you do, uh, if for $10 or more, we would be happy to send you a BAI tote bag. Um, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100%, relies 100% on listed donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants. And your support is tax deductible. And we hope that you'll join us on Monday when Musab Yunus will discuss his book on the scale of the world, The Formation of Black Anti-Colonial Thought. Have a great weekend.